Hello you. Welcome to this space. I'm your host Ruth and this is No Time for Small Talk. The podcast where we unpack the more complex and deeper aspects of life and explore taboo topics with curiosity and open discussion. We will be delving into mental and physical health, addiction, trauma, birth, death, and pretty much anything else we can dive to the depths of. If you have found your way here, I'm sure you are searching for something deeper, and I hope these conversations provide you with enlightening perspectives, comfort, education, and a smile or two. So wherever you are listening, welcome and enjoy the show. Welcome to this week's episode. Today I'm lucky enough to be joined by my amazing mum Christina who is joining me today to discuss the impact of generational trauma, the mother wound, mental health in families and parenting through adversity. My mum Christina is a mother of four, a nana of two, a thriving business owner with 24 staff members, the owner of seven properties She was the first female Irish building surveyor in Ireland. She has appeared on Irish TV and radio as a valued and knowledgeable professional in her field. And she is currently leading businesses in becoming more sustainable throughout Ireland. She is the daughter of two Polish World War II survivors and has been single parenting for the past 17 years. She is also an artist, a poet and an avid Irish sea swimmer. So hello, mum. Welcome to the show. Oh, hello. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I know I haven't given you much, much notice to come onto the show, so it's really nice that you've been able to take time and to be here. And also thank you for getting up early because we're obviously on very different time zones. So I appreciate the taking time out of your Saturday. No problem at all. Delighted to be here. Okay, so... I thought what would be really nice if maybe we could just start with a little bit about your family background, about kind of the story of your parents, I guess, and sort of their journey to up until when you were born. Okay, so it's um, quite a long story. I'll maybe give you the um, highlights of it, and then you can ask questions about areas where you'd, you'd like to delve a little deeper. Essentially, both my parents were children when the Second World War started. My mum was eight. She was uh, a middle child in a family of two parents and five children. And my father was a uh, second a child of a second wife. My grandfather's first wife had died. So he had much older siblings, but he was the spoiled youngest child who lived in the apartment with his um, parents in the city of Lvov. They were both, uh, by different routes, ended up being taken to Siberia by the Russians. My mom lost all of her family bar one sister, and my dad um, lost his father and his older siblings in Poland who survived, but they were separated. Um, They had various traumatic journeys through the war years um, and both ended up separately in the UK in 
Library in, in yeah in Britain in 1948. Uh, my father came with the Polish army in exile, and my mother came from a Polish orphanage in exile in Tanzania, and eventually met in Birmingham, where a large Polish community had settled, Polish expatriate community had settled post-World War II, and married and had four children, three of which survived, and I'm the youngest of the four. Um... I met my uh, life partner when I was quite young, when I was 18, in Birmingham. He was, is of Irish descent, and we ended up moving to Ireland in 1994. Um, two of my children were born in the UK, two were born in Ireland, and unfortunately the marriage didn't work out, and... I've been on my own with the kids since around 2007. Um, what else? You delve where you want to delve. Yeah, thank you so much. I just think, obviously, it's such a shortened down version, what you've kind of shared about your parents and everything that way they went through. But even when you just shorten it down in such short snippets, it's like, it's such an extreme story and life that they lived to get to the point that they got to in England. I guess thinking about that and their story and their past and the way that everything that they went through to get to the point where they met in England and had kids, um, as one of those kids, would you say that you feel there was a big impact from their childhood on how they parented? Absolutely. Um, and I suppose I probably only became aware of it, of quite how big the impact was when I went through my own therapy journey and really delved into it and explored it. But um, even when I was, um, you know, when I was a, a young adult, I I used to hide in my bedroom and wish I didn't live in a family that was just mad. That's the only way I could describe it. The behavior, there was no alcoholism, there was no substance abuse, but the behaviors in the household, particularly from the parents, were not the behaviors of happy adult people. They were, I would say, the behaviours of an eight-year-old and a ten-year-old who were trying to parent and who really had no idea how to do it because they'd never been or had only been parented themselves properly up to those ages and were then in survival mode mm. for the next decade. So... You know, there's no blame attached to them because they did the very best they could and they loved their children and tried to do their best, but they did not have the skills and resources to parent in ways that were stable and secure, mm. if that makes sense. Mm. A lot of the time when we were growing up, um, I've, I've actually talked about this with my older brother, um, a little, but 
our bedtime stories would be when I was in Siberia X. And we knew no better and we'd ask for more stories or we'd ask for the same stories again, but they were very traumatizing to small children. Um, you know, stories of surviving by eating raw cats, for instance. Stories of um, meeting a wolf and trying to take a loaf of bread out of its mouth because it was a loaf of bread and everybody was starving. Um, that you know the stories are endless i could i have hundreds and hundreds of stories mm. but you imagine little brains taking these stories in it cannot but leave a sense that the world is a very precarious place and a very unsafe place mm. and that you have to survive and we were also told very very frequently and and a lot of kids had this but you know, if you said ever that you were hungry, the answer would be you don't know what hunger is, mm. which is true. In that context, we didn't know what hunger was. But there was a great sense then, which I only really realized in my own therapy journey of negating the experiences that we had as kids, that nothing we had could in any way, none of our trauma could in any way compare with the trauma that our parents and the rest of the adult society that lived around us, because many, many of them were survivors of very similar journeys, had experienced. Mm. And so I guess that probably there was a sense that you couldn't really express if something was wrong or if you were struggling with something in your life, because it's like, well... You're so lucky. Yeah, it would be very much, you know, um, if I had a headache, my mom's response would be, oh, you're just like me. I have a headache every day of my life. So mm. you, you, there was no sense of, right, this is what we do. Let's sort this out. Let's see what's going on. There was a sense that, there's going to be suffering and this is your life now. Mm. Uh, or at another time I, when I was a young teenager, maybe 13, I ran away from home after some fight. And when my dad sit da sat down with me to talk about it, the approach he took was that I couldn't run away from home again because how could he run his business if he was worried that I might run away from home rather mm. than any sort of sense looking into why why I'd done it. It was like, please don't run away from home again because to look after me, you can't run away from home again. Mm. So there was a great sense that, and I think this happens to a lot of um, uh, kids from parents who went through terrific trauma, that you're vicariously experiencing some of their trauma because of the responses you they because of the way they operate in the world mm. what do you mean by that when you say that you were experiencing their trauma could you talk a little bit more on that 
Yeah, I I think um, well, there's so many strands to this. It's quite a uh, it's a it's a fascinating area and a fascinating and complex um, um, issue to, to this issue of sort of generational trauma that's passed down. But certainly, I I I'm not aware of any time in my life where I wasn't hypervigilant. Now, whether that is because of the my family experience, nurture, or whether that is because of nature and something genetic, I don't know, or a mix of the two. I don't know. Mm. Um, I, I know years ago I was um, I was kind of in a bit of a meditative state and I actually had an experience, which probably sounds a bit crazy, but I I experienced myself in the womb Mm. and had a sense that of being in the womb and everything was calm and warm and comfortable. And then suddenly there was a spike of adrenaline and my whole tiny little body startled in the womb. And then it went back to being calm and peaceful. And then it happened again. Mm. And so and this is all imagination, but in my imagination or memory, but I doubt it's a memory, there is this sense that soon all there was was waiting for the next startle, waiting mm. for the next frightening to happen. Mm. So that the whole womb experience was peace, then startle peace then startled but and and I know my mother was very stressed when she was pregnant and you know her marriage was not in a great place and there was an awful lot going on so I think if you come into the world with that stress response you're probably going to be primed to be hyper vigilant from the from the get-go Yeah. And it's so interesting because you said so many times, you know, I, this is crazy or I doubt this could be the case or, you know, but actually there's so many fields of thought and so much more understanding into limbic imprinting and into cellular memory and people, whether your conscious mind can actually remember the experience of being in the womb, something within your cells and something within your body remembers that, that sense, you know, and if it's like, like you said, if that's the beginning of your journey, that you're not getting that nurturing sense of safety and security and stillness and just being held, it kind of automatically sets you up for stress yeah and then I think also there was this whole um this whole sense that you again, I don't think this is unique to me and my childhood, but certainly in the sixties, there was a sense that you had to toughen up and be tougher as a child, um not just boys, you know, children generally, so you know, walk into school in the snow in winter maybe six or seven years old in ankle socks and a short skirt. And if you complained you were cold, you were just told, oh, well, toughen up, child, toughen up. 
know. Mm. And so it was a strange combination of indulgence, because there certainly was some indulgence, and neglect. Mm. It was kind of what you said before, going back to that womb space. It's like you've got these periods of calm and soothing and nurturing and love. And then this period of stress and everything's all chaotic. It's almost like that then continued into childhood where it's like that stability and knowing what to expect and knowing what's coming isn't there because you've got some times where you're really loved and cared for and held and indulged. But then there's other times where it's completely gone. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And and again, I'd bring that back to this sense that my parents who were trying to parent to the best of their abilities were operating from the level of an eight-year-old child and a 10-year-old child pretending to be grown-ups mm. in the world. Um, so I think, I mean, I think they had very different ways of coping. So my dad's way of coping was perhaps the slightly more stable. So, you know, he worked, he set up a business, he worked very long hours, he was never there, and he coped by distancing himself from anything that would demand too much from him emotionally. You know, when he was there, he was loving and giving, but his absence was the bigger part of my childhood Mm. than his presence. And I didn't really think about it in that way until I had a conversation again with my older brother, who's eight years older than me, who whose sense of it was that it was actually quite a comfortable choice for my father to work as hard as he did and to travel as much as he did with his work, because when he did, he was on his own. He was in his van or in his car. And he didn't have to be responsible for anything or anybody else because he was doing his duty by working hard and earning money. Mm. Um, For my mom, I think things were more difficult because she had suffered so many losses and been through such traumatic circumstances. You know, she lost her father first, then the twin siblings, then her mother, and then finally her brother uh, as they as they left the Soviet Union, as they travelled by, by boat, by small boat across the Caspian Sea um, to, to Persia, which is now Iran. He was still alive, but he was very sick when they landed on the shores uh, at Pahlavi, and he died in the British Red, Red Cross quarantine tents in Pahlavi. Mm. So that left herself and her sister, who were then maybe aged 10 and 12, uh, on their own in an orphanage in exile, which essentially had such little resources that there was there was always lack of food and there was very little love. There wasn't anybody who could give you a hug or hold you close. It was just about survival and keeping these children alive and finding somewhere in the world where they would be safe from war. Mm. So she arrived at age 16 with just, a, you know, the middle of one of the coldest winters on record in 1948 
again in a short dress and a cardigan and ankle socks and no clothes vouchers to buy clothes in a situation where rationing was still the case and went straight into work at a Chivers jam factory and thought she was very, very lucky to have that opportunity. So against that context, it's not surprising she would have told me to toughen myself up because I was cold walking to school. You know, mm. this is life, but you have to learn to cope with. You can't be too soft if you're going to survive in a, in the world. Mm. But her, so coming from that background and coming into a marriage that was not the be-all and end-all, was not the happy homecoming that perhaps she dreamt it would be. Losing a child who, was, who died a few hours after birth, um, which is her second child. And basically, these griefs and losses, one after the other, triggered probably a major mental health, I'm not even going to say crisis, but a, a, an ongoing mental health tragedy for her that was never addressed as a grief issue but was addressed with medication and very violent electroconvulsive shock therapy mm. none of which was really helped in any way to helping her to become more healthy mm. she did achieve stability and mental health in her later years which was great and probably her last decade was the the calmest and the happiest that she had but as a parent, it meant that it was quite challenging for all all of us siblings, but probably most so my middle brother, who was born just uh, 18 months after the baby that had died, who was never, you know, it was just get on with it, have another baby. Mm. And my mum would have deep depression at that time. Mm. Um, and certainly impacted his mental health. Mm. And when she was having the electrotherapy and the, like lots of medications and stuff, was that before or after you were born? Do you remember that period at all? Um, so I, what I remember is that she was always depressed. She was always depressed. Um, and she would speak about being depressed, but... She was also, she she would quite often just walk around the house crying and singing Ave Maria with tears streaming down her face, which was obviously her way of trying to remain functioning mm. in some way because she essentially had, had to look after three children and a job. Mm. But there was always a sense that she was the vulnerable one and therefore, you had to be, just get on with things. Mm. Just get on with things. Just, you know, whatever you had to do and you know, go to school and whatever. And be as little trouble as you could be because there was already enough to worry about. It's so hard as a child. Yeah, I suppose as a child, you don't think it's hard because it's just your life and you don't have a context to think about it as being hard. And particularly so when a lot of the people that you knew were going... So I lived in quite a big Polish expatriate community. We all went to Polish Saturday school together. And the parents were all a bit bonkers. Mm. You know, everybody 
so the Polish club was dysfunctional in some way. And therefore, there were a lot of people who were just not very well, who all rubbed along together and got through it, I'd say. Got through it somehow. And the kids kind of tagged along getting through it. Mm. That sounds very self-pitying. And I, I mean, you know, there was lots of great things in my childhood. In fact, you know, one of the great things in my childhood was the fact that my dad was a bit of a kid, so he'd do crazy things with us, like when we went camping in the New Forest, if there was no wind to fly our kites, he'd sit us in the roof rack of the car and drive around the forest roads so that we could fly our kites. God. <laughs> so, which uh... I don't think they could taken into care now if somebody saw that happening. Um. It's really interesting, though, because what I was thinking about her experience around the what you said was that her grief was never honoured and it was just treated with as a mental health disorder and treated with medication and treated with electrotherapy. And it's like, yeah, what occurred to me when you were saying that was kind of that generational impact of your pain and your suffering not being honored and not being welcomed so just shove it back in don't talk about it and I feel like that's a pattern that's definitely followed like I have that I know you have that you know I think it's been a pattern that's followed the whole way through yeah well actually maybe maybe it is being broken because I love to see my grandsons able to vocalize what they need mm. and able to speak feelings so as an example when the boys were staying with me a couple of weekends ago the older one who's eight uh was playing in the in with his younger brother who's five and came in to me and said to me that he just felt he wanted a bit of time on his own mm. and could he have that please mm. and it was great he was a, he knew what he wanted and needed and he was able to ask for it mm. and we have to put it against the context of the times as well i mean it, the 60s when i was born was a very very different time very different opinions on the roles of parents and how they interact with children so for example i don't remember my parents ever 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 playing with me like mm. playing a game as it you know monopoly or chess or you know getting down to play with the soft toys or anything like that parents didn't do that mm. Par adults did adults children did children's things and that wasn't unusual for them that was just the way that the world operated so things have changed in some ways for the better and and it's fantastic that we have language around some of these things mm. so i think that was also completely missing for my parents generation Yeah, like the concept of being traumatised probably wasn't even a thing you thought about. No. No, there was no such term as post-traumatic stress. There was no, you know, they were lucky that they were alive and had survived and that's what that's how it was interpreted, mm. you know. Um, actually, I've, I've often thought, because my mum's last five years when she lived in a care home were, were very she was very stable and quite happy in herself 
And I've often thought that somehow the circle had closed and it was the first time in her life that she was being looked after. Mm. Other people that were looking after her and her well-being. And I think that had an enormous impact on, positive impact on her mental health. Mm. So sad, isn't it? You know, that it wasn't until she was 80 that she felt she had finally been looked after. Very sad. Yeah, very sad. And I do also wonder again, you know, going back to that generational impact and the generational wounds kind of carrying, because when you said that, what I thought, what came to me was, do you feel like you've been looked after? Hmm. Interesting question. I can feel myself getting a bit tearful when you ask that. Mm. Probably not. And, uh, you know, as we all know, our main responsibility is to look after ourselves um, and probably not looked after by myself either. Mm. Mm. Thanks for sharing all that. And I did want to share as well about when you were speaking about the womb and this memory or this meditation you were in where you kind of got this sense of feeling stress and feeling being in the womb not really being safe and secure and it was really fascinating is that I actually had a therapy session about a year ago maybe or a bit less and this particular therapist she uses acutonics tuning forks so they kind of help you to shift things out of your body and drop into memory or whatever comes up for you and I had a similar experience where I was brought back to the womb in a meditation and it's really funny because that was my same experience that all I could feel was stress Mm. and that my resounding realization was that while I was in the womb you couldn't rest. And so what I imprinted from that was that you don't rest, you just keep going. Mm, interesting. I um, And I suppose um, with, with my pregnancy with you, I was working, I was in quite a, I, I wasn't working for myself then, but I was in quite a senior position in a company uh, it was a very healthy pregnancy, really, really healthy pregnancy. But when I was um, 11-ish weeks pregnant, I had a prolapse of the uterus. And it happened when I was in Cork working. And I phoned my doctor. I didn't know what it was, but essentially I could feel something at the mouth of the vagina, which was actually the uterus, Mm. had dropped down to that point. And the doctor told me to go up to the hospital in Cork, which I did very much on my own, very much feeling frightened, not knowing what was happening. They did a scan. Everything was fine. You were okay. They explained that it was um, the uterus had dropped down. It was a prolapse of the uterus. And... I finished my working day in Cork. Mm. And then I drove home three and a half hours. Mm. And then I carried on working. And a week later, I ended up hospitalized with retention of urine Mm. uh, because the prolapse had caused 
retention of urine. But again, I was in hospital for three days, and when I came out, I was straight back to work. Mm. Um, so, yeah, work was very much a stressor at the time. And that's probably also, I was very, as I say, I was fit and healthy. I was playing tennis up till 32 weeks. And in fact, then I had a bleed, which was again really stressful, and an emergency visit to hospital to check everything was okay. And the advice was basically to stop doing as much, mm. um, which I maybe did towards the end of the pregnancy. Mm. Even at the time of your birth, um, things were very stressful because it was a home birth, which is great. But the other two children fell ill on the day that I went into labor with you. Mm. There was a lot of trying to juggle the two parents to look after two sick kids and give birth to a baby. Yeah, and like on that, because that was another interesting thing, and I don't think it was in that meditation actually or in something else, but that came up for me too, that it was because I had known, we had talked about this before, that um, my siblings got sick when I was being born and what came from that like an imprint that I downloaded was I'm not important I'm never important mm. and I feel like that was something I ca I've carried for so long and I'm kind of only trying to unpack it now and whether it came from that point or whether it came from other things after that but it was a memory and a feeling what I kind of came into the world with was that it's not okay to rest I'm not important and everything is quite stressful. Mm. It's also worth uh, perhaps mentioning your eczema, which unlike most childhood eczemas which come in the first few months of life, only came at two and a quarter and literally appeared within a month of you stopping breastfeeding. And... Some of the alternative practitioners that we consulted at the time felt that it was a grief response. That So maybe the one thing that gave you a sense of being secure and held was the continued breastfeeding, mm. which continued till you were two and a quarter. And then the withdrawal of that triggered something mm. in your body mm. because you'd been eating balance you know you'd been eating everything up until that point there was no dairy reaction there was no gluten you know wheat reaction there was no egg reaction yeah it's fascinating so, yeah mm. and I've often thought like when I've kind of tried to delve more into my x-men that way understanding of it and trying to look at it from a more holistic point of view has been like what been the purpose of it what have I gained from having it rather mm. than what have I lost mm. and something that came to me really strongly last year when I had a very bad flare-up and couldn't fix it was that one I'm forced to rest which I don't let myself mm. do literally I cannot not rest I have to rest and two I have to be looked after mm. so it's like I have to mm. let people be there and look after me 
And so it's interesting to look at it from that point of view. It's like, you know, if you're a child who's like longing for this connection and security and safety, and then your body creates this response that no one can ignore, it's kind of a smart, yeah. it's kind of a smart thing on the body sense to get your needs yeah. met. Yeah. 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 And I think if you, if you were like that, there is no doubt that for the two years after, after you were two and a quarter and the eczema started, the entire family's entire attention was on you and your eczema because it couldn't not be because it was so severe. And then yet at the same time, the other part of that has also been that I've carried so much guilt as well from that, from, I don't know, it's like, I think I'm still trying to make sense of what that guilt is, but it's like taking all the attention away from everything else, you know, knowing that my siblings had to lose out on having time and care and attention and added stress to kind of the home and the family and all the things that came later and all the things that came after obviously as an adult I know none of it was my fault everything happened the way it happened but it's interesting holding that guilt still yeah for sure and I, I you know I think it would be something really interesting to go back to family therapy with because I think you know for your siblings, there would have been a very different experience and their experience would have been very much worry about you, obviously, but also utter frustration because every outing ended up cancelled or, you know, we'd go home immediately during those two years, Mm. not for your entire childhood, but during those two years because of your condition. And perhaps your reaction to stress and to being in a new place and so on. Mm. Um, but there's a lot of unpicking there. Mm. Um, a lot of unpicking there. And and interestingly, I had eczema as a child. Mm. I don't remember having it as a child. I have no memory of it, but my mum tells me it was very severe. And it was apparently cured by they took me into some hospital and coated me with something black. She doesn't know what it was. And the only time it ever came back was when I was pregnant with you, which is also interesting. Mm. I had really bad eczema when I was pregnant with you. Yeah, there's so much there. I feel like it could be its own whole episode and podcast in itself. You know, it's just it's so fascinating. But I think maybe we'll just move on a little bit because I'm also aware of the time and not keeping you for too long. We did touch on sort of mental health and family. And I think, again, that's such a big topic that I feel to open that is another whole can of worms. Um, So I did kind of want to just move forward and talk a little bit about sort of parenting through adversity. When I think about that and what I what kind of came to me about this topic was obviously the fact that you have been a single parent for the most part for the past well I said 17 years I think that's about right since the youngest is 18 now um and I guess just 
if you could talk a little bit about your experience, I guess, of parenting four kids over this time frame with all of the other stressors that have come with life and with relationships and with dynamics and just kind of how that's been. Yeah, so I suppose my first thing I'd say is I never wanted to or planned to be a single parent. That's not something that was in my picture of how my life was going to be. And it happened very suddenly. So I suddenly found myself with four children from, you know, age one to 15. And I was still breastfeeding the one-year-old. A business. Myself as the sole breadwinner. And all of that to to deal with. And to be honest, the first couple of years, I don't really know how I got through it. Actually, what's really, really interesting um, is that I'm really bad at asking for help. And I actually had to ask for help because there was just no physical way of being at the different places to pick up different people at the times they needed to be picked up. Mm with four children of such different ages and in three different locations, four different locations during the day. Mm. Um, so I did ask for help and the help came through, which was quite astonishing to me because it wasn't something that I'd done before. And then I suppose every year brought new and different challenges. And I tried to do my utmost to be the strong pair of shoulders for you know, all five of us, and to be the one that everybody felt was there and steady and stable and could support us all. But it took its toll. It was quite challenging. It was quite challenging. And I didn't get it right all the time, for sure, for sure, for sure, for sure. One parent, four children, there just isn't enough attention to put in all directions, particularly when you yourself are going through your own trauma response. Mm. and trying to deal with it. I'm delighted everybody tells me that all four of you are great adults and I should be really proud of you. So, you know, together we must have done something right. But mm. there was certainly more parenting by children of their siblings than should have had to happen. Mm. And there wasn't enough parent to go around. Mm. And there was also a lot of guilt because I'd always, always said that I wouldn't, I'd always, I'd sort of promised you, you kids, like before you were even born, like when there was just one child, that I would never separate, that I would never divorce, that I'd never put them in the situation that we were in as kids. Mm. But it became, it became something that couldn't be avoided, something that just, you know, happened. So there was a lot of guilt that I'd, you know, I had done this, I had made this happen, that there were now four children that only had one parent who wasn't quite adequate to do everything that should be done in uh, an ideal two-parent family. Mm. I also found it quite difficult to bridge the gap of being both father and mother at the same time. Obviously, I was never father, but I do things that are the father's role. Mm. And 
you have to somehow try and accommodate both the fathering and the mothering in mm. one place. And that was very difficult. I, I remember particular occasions like going to buy a suit with my oldest son when it was his Debs coming up and mm. not having a notion as to what men think about when they're buying suits and, mm. you know, formal clothes and so on, but trying to do my best to be there and to be part of it and so on. Mm. And being the only parent at parent-teacher evenings was also tough. Mm. And at all the other you know, sports days and graduations and all the other events, mm. that was tough. Mm. Yeah, it's so interesting how, like, I don't know, is it generational patterns repeating? Like you were saying, you had promised yourself that certain things wouldn't happen and then they do happen. It's like, is that, you know, some sort of unconscious, unresolved generational pattern that carries on and gets repeated? Or is it just like sometimes life just hits you in an unexpected way and you can't do anything to avoid it. I, I, it is very interesting. And I mean, I, I had thought for years that I'd married my father because there were some physical similarities between my ex-partner and my father. And actually, it was only in therapy after he'd left, or actually maybe just before he left, but around that time that I realized that actually it was like a slap in the face. It was like, oh, my God, I actually married my mother. Oh, wow. Not my father, I married my mother. So essentially I married somebody who was charming and gregarious and could be very loving, but not in a consistent or stable way. Mm. And somebody who had very unpredictable behaviour. So, so I married, in fact, even when I was first with your father, like the first couple of years, few years of the relationship, um, when we were living together and we had, you know, maybe had a big fight or had had some big fights. I remember saying to my best friend, yeah, but he feels like family. Mm. Not knowing, I mean, I hadn't done any of the sort of psychological work or, mm. or the therapy or at that stage so I didn't know that that was the very sentence that should have made me run a million miles mm. from the relationship because he felt like family and family for me was a place of chaos mm. and dysfunctionality mm. and it's so funny so. again because you go back to the generational patterns again and the things repeating because that's exactly my experience of my childhood and how I talk of it is like, it was chaos. I know that the situation we were all in was really challenging and everyone did the very best they possibly could. And the adult version of me completely understands that you had to be out working to keep a business, to keep a roof over our head, to keep food on the table, that there was four of us there's one of you that there's you can't be in every place at once and that you know we all kind of were fending for ourselves a little bit at one point I understand that that's just the way actually the only way to survive yet at the same time the child me is like yeah it was absolute chaos 
and there was no one around and you're on your own and you're fending for yourself. What you said about, you know, meeting someone and them feeling like home, that's something that's such a common thing is that we seek out and replay the same dynamics that existed in our childhood to try and fix what was missing or to try and resolve this pattern that was wrong, essentially. And yet, a lot of times it doesn't work out that way unless, I guess, both people are really willing to do the work and change and look at their own traumas and patterns because obviously, you know, both people in relationship come from their own dynamic pasts and stories and something that I that really it was very confronting for me when we moved and we started to have the boys half the time because for the first little while there it was chaos because it was they too had been through their own traumas and their own journeys that was very um uprooted was very chaotic was very messy and so when they came into the picture it was like there's two kids around everything is absolute chaos people are fighting and I found myself so triggered because it was like I've seen this pattern before not only does this whole dynamic trigger and stress me out, but also I recognize me in these children and I know what it's like to Mm. be them and to be existing in this state of chaos. But then as Mm. the adult in the situation, having a child response and going into that chaos and stress and hypervigilance and not being able to emotionally regulate myself was like, well, how can you possibly then help to emotionally regulate other people? Mm. Mm. Very interesting. And um, I I would say for sure that my mom was not able to emotionally regulate herself, for for sure. So her response to, let's say, bad behaviour from her children not me so much because I was generally quite well behaved until I was a teenager and then I just was ignored for the you know mm. the bad behavior was not causing anybody else any trouble so it just you know wasn't commented on but for the boys who would do the sort of things you're talking about fighting physically fighting you know and so on her response was to become completely hysterical pull out a leather belt with knots on it and start whipping them with it and it was you know it was it was a response born from a from the mental position of an 8 year old who didn't know what to do with all of this mm. i i consciously tried very hard not to be that person who couldn't regulate my mood but i'm sure you'll remember the times when on a saturday i'd start cleaning the house and it would all just overwhelm me and I'd be, you know, getting really upset and shouting at everybody and so on because at that point it was just there was so much to be done. Obviously in a household with four children and now it's the weekend and you've got to do all the things that you have to do anyway but there hasn't been anybody there in the house during the week to do it and and it's all now accumulated. Mm. 
and it's quite difficult to emotionally regulate yourself. And unfortunately for all of us and for all our families, the place where you can behave worst and get away with it is in your home. Mm. And I guess because what you were saying that your mum didn't know how to emotionally regulate, she didn't teach any of you how to emotionally regulate. What you were saying, like you didn't want to be that way, you know, you didn't want to freak out and start whipping everyone. You succeeded in that, you know, you never hit any of us. But yet what I feel from you was you would withdraw. You would just completely go into your own self, go silent. And it was obviously your way of not exploding and not creating more of an impact or kind of abusive behavior. But yet the experience of that was on the other side, well, you're completely gone and I'm still left on my own and I have no freaking idea how to emotionally regulate myself because no one's teaching me. You know, it's like, obviously that was just a result of you never learned. So then you're an adult with kids and you don't know how to teach them. And then I'm an adult with kids around and I don't know how to teach them. And it's like, you know, now obviously at the point that I'm trying my best to learn. So it's so difficult to learn as an adult things that you never learned as a child. Mm. Well, I remember feeling such enormous admiration. I have a friend who lives in England They're both very calm people who came from pretty stable and calm homes. And I remember when they were staying with us and one of their children was really misbehaving, really, really misbehaving. And I remember watching them do what I would always have liked to have done, but taking the child off in the garden on his own, getting down to his level, you know, crouching down on the grass till their face was at his level and speaking really calmly and slowly with him Mm. until he had regulated himself. Mm. And then the two of them coming back into the situation with everybody else. Mm. Whereas I think my responses to those sort of situations would have been, and again, I was following the advice of the time. You know, mm. I would have tried time out, and I know now that time out is a dreadful, dreadful, dreadful thing because all it mm. does is abandons the child who, who is not capable of regulating mm. themselves to their own trauma and dysregulation mm. and that and, and, you know, it's it's not a good thing at all, but at the time that would have been considered to be a really um, empathetic way of calming your child mm. down. <laughs> but I do think the thing about withdrawing, I think that's probably something that comes from learning from my father. Mm. And I do sometimes, I've sometimes feared that there is in me this peace that can just detach. Mm. And it happened more in friendships than in family, but it's happened occasionally in family, not with you kids so much, but where I've just got to a point where I have emotionally completely detached. Mm. And it happens almost in an instant, and I know it's happened, and I know that at this point I have no feeling inside me towards this person at all. Mm. And when that happens, I hate it because it I think that I think that that is what my dad did. Mm. It's come to me not because I've learned the behavior I don't think, but it's just 
inside me somewhere waiting to pounce, if that makes sense. Mm. It's almost like a dissociation behavior. Instead of trying to deal with your pain, you just completely detach. Mm. Oh, well, there's been a lot there. And I feel if we go any further, we're going to be here for another hour. So I really think we need to bring it to a close. But yeah, is there anything? Could I I just say there's one thing that I would like to say, which is for all that this was a lot of talking about the negatives. I think there's a gift and a shadow in everything. And there are definitely gifts to my childhood experiences. And the gift perhaps is that the hypervigilance has made me extremely successful at operating in the world and being of service to others and being able to operate a business and look after all the multiple strands of things that have to be looked after in those circumstances. Mm. The shadow that that's sometimes to my own detriment no matter what our experiences, I think there are gifts that arise out of them and it's worth acknowledging those as well as the shadows. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really important. And I also think um, intention behind this is not to, you know, look at the bad or, or shame or blame or anything. It's actually just to highlight when we look at the past, when we look at the stories that come from our ancestry and our you know parents and grandparents and going forward generations we can just learn so much and we can when we're aware of something we can change it so we can we've learned and also not want to repeat the same thing going forward for sure for sure thank you so much for your time this has been amazing and I really feel like we need to just like take another call off recording and just go on and on for hours because there's just so much there and there's so much yeah to get into and to really dig into but I think we'll leave it there for today I really hope anyone that's listening to this gets something out of this episode and maybe it'll open up a conversation between you and your family members And yeah, I will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to No Time for Small Talk. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, share and leave a review. Remember to follow our Instagram, No Time for Small Talk, for extra resources and to be the first to hear about upcoming guests or events. If you would like to connect or find out more about my work, you can find me on Instagram at Ruma Integrative or by emailing ruma-connect at outlook.com. I hope you have a beautiful rest of your day. Bye for now.